Fire kills a child at the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Shamarwa First Nation declares a state of emergency. A driver of a pickup truck intentionally drives onto sidewalk to hit pedestrians in Amqui, Quebec. Why didn't the RCMP intervene in the detention of the Pivot Airlines crew? And Afghan journalist Hussein Naderi is killed after a bomb is detonated targeting a journalist's gathering. Good morning. It's Wednesday, March 15th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. A child has died after a fire tore through a camping trailer at the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. It happened Monday morning at 1.53 a.m. A family was living in the trailer at the time of the fire. Two adults and four children suffered minor injuries. The child who died was 10 years old. A CBC Hamilton article by Bobby Herzova has comment from several local leaders, including the fire chief of Six Nations, Ashley Russell Taylor, who said that it was a, quote, fully involved structure fire, unquote, that appeared to affect multiple trailers. There was no information about how many other trailers, what kind of supports the family had while their trailers have been destroyed, or broader information related to the fire and Indigenous housing. You'll recall that I've mentioned fires at First Nations communities that have killed children and adults before on this podcast. And this morning, I wanted to highlight this issue more fundamentally, especially in the wake of the fire at the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. In a recent feature for the Canadian press, Kelly Geraldine Malone writes about several instances where children lost their lives in fires on reserve. In particular, she mentions one fire that happened at Sandy Lake First Nation in January where three children under the age of nine died. She also writes about a fire at Siksika Nation, where three people were also killed. And in February, 49 people were displaced from their apartment building after a fire tore through eight units that housed 10 families at Tatasquayak Cree Nation in northern Manitoba. And a 10-year-old girl died in a house fire at Pewatnook, Ontario. In that fire, nine people had to be flown to another First Nation because the community's nursing station ran out of oxygen. And you'll remember that two weeks ago, I mentioned there were three people that died in a fire at Picanicum First Nation in Ontario. The chief coroner of Ontario found that First Nation's children under the age of 10 had a mortality rate that is 86 times higher than that of non-First Nation's children. 86. I hope you reflect on this. 86 times more likely to die in a fire if you're First Nation's child in this country than if you're not a First Nation's child. This is a crisis. And one of the things about doing the the daily news podcast and just consuming a lot of news is you see the face of indifference from the federal government that has a legal and moral responsibility to fix these conditions. While these nations are left oftentimes without working fire suppression materials, working pumps, working trucks, in a lot of these cases, they had to just watch the structure smolder to the ground It's horrible, it's traumatic, and it continues harm that we apparently are trying to fix through reconciliation. Which brings me to the next story this morning. Shimadawa First Nation is the second Manitoba First Nation to declare a state of emergency in the past week. Chief Jordan Hill has called the state of emergency after several suicides and a fire that destroyed eight families' homes. 
As with any story related to suicide, it's tragic, but it's particularly tragic because a few weeks ago, after the death of a young girl by suicide, her mother also took her own life. Hill told CBC, quote, violence in Shimadawa all stems from social issues. Housing is overcrowded and leads to family pressure, which fuels addictions. I fear this may only be the starting point, sadly, unless something is done immediately. The community lacks supports for people to rebuild familial connections that were destroyed by the 60s scoop and residential schools. They don't have proper firefighting equipment. They don't have enough mental health support. They don't have other supports. These stories are replicated over and over and over again. And the indifference and refusal to act on the behalf of the federal government, it just makes no sense unless you look at this through the lens of genocide. And then it makes perfect sense. Now to Quebec, where Steve Gagnon intentionally slammed into a group of people who were walking along a sidewalk in downtown Amqui. The community of 6,000 is at the edge of the Gaspé Peninsula in the bas laurent region of the province. Gagnon deliberately hit the pedestrians, but he chose his victims at random. It was just after three o'clock in the afternoon on Monday. He accelerated his pickup truck as he drove onto the sidewalk into a crowd of people. Gérard Charret and Jean Lafreniere died and nine others were injured. This is the second vehicle-related murder spree that has happened in Quebec since the start of the year. A city bus driver in Laval deliberately drove into a daycare, killing two children. Now, by happenstance, this morning across the province, protests were held calling for safer streets around the province's elementary and secondary schools. While the protests were called before this tragedy in Amqui, it is a reminder that cars and trucks do kill, that pedestrian infrastructure in this province and all across Canada is inadequate, our sidewalks are too narrow, and people have been calling for action for a long time. Now, this next story relies on you remembering about the Pivot Airlines crew who had been stuck in the Dominican Republic for months and months. Recall, Dominican Republic authorities arrested and detained the crew for the charter flight after drugs were found in the plane. The crew, flight attendants, and pilots were detained for eight months. They were eventually released when one of the crew members spotted that security footage had been doctored. With this discovery, they were able to demonstrate that they had nothing to do with the found drugs and were eventually released. Eric Sato and Avery Haynes from CTV's W5 have uncovered that the RCMP was aware of potential cocaine shipments from the Dominican Republic. But they say, quote, inexplicably allowed the crew that discovered and reported the drugs to be detained for months without intervening. As early as February 2022, the RCMP was looking into at least two Pivot Airlines passengers who have, quote, extensive ties to Alberta's drug trade. The crew was arrested in April that year after 200 kilos of cocaine was found in the avionics bay of their aircraft at the Punta Cana airport. The RCMP never intervened in the crew member's case, despite the fact that they had knowledge about drug shipments and this airline. W5 reports that the RCMP refused to answer, quote, any specific questions, unquote, about what they were looking into or what they knew. Now they admit that they were aware of a potential drug smuggling operation, they report. 
If you're curious about the guys who might have been doing the cocaine importing, check out W5's investigation on this affair. It's fascinating, and some of that background is included in this article. But they conclude with this, quote, I want to know why Canadian authorities let us stay there for eight months, said Pivot Airlines pilot Rob DiVenanzo. Quote, I want to know from law enforcement, what did you know? Because if you can put an international airline's crew lives in danger, you're going to do that to any member of society. We could have been killed in jail, unquote. Finally, news from the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is an international journalist human rights organization. On March 11th, at a celebration for National Journalist Day in Mazar-e-Sharif, the capital of Balkh province in Afghanistan, a bomb was set off. Responsibility was claimed by the Islamic State. Journalist Hossein Naderi was killed alongside a security guard. In addition, 16 other journalists were injured, nine were seriously injured, and two passed this information on to the Committee to Protect Journalists anonymously in fear of retaliation from both the Taliban and the Islamic State. Naderi worked with the Afghan Voice Agency, an independent news organization that focuses on news in Balkh province. The Committee to Protect Journalists ranks Afghanistan fourth worst of countries that prosecute people who murder journalists. Those are your headlines for today. It is Wednesday, March 15th. I'm Nora, and I hope you have an excellent Wednesday.